Hello and welcome to the second episode of Points of Information, the podcast by the Debaters Association of Victoria aimed at our school's competition students. If you recognise my voice, that's because you heard me in the first episode, for those of you who haven't heard it yet. I'm Alexander Gregory, the DAV's Media and Publications Officer, and we also have a familiar voice in the room with us today, that of Izzy. Hi, my name is Isabella, or Izzy, Leech now, rather than Cruz's yes, last time. Yes, I was about time. to say there has been some goings on at the dev since then. Yes, small changes, but I am the junior programs and public speaking administrator in the DAV office. So I run the JSP program, which is just about to get started, primary schools and our public speaking programs. We also have here a new voice, that of the DAV secretary, Elmira. Hi, my name is Elmira. I've been an adjudicator for about a year and a half now. I adjudicate in a lot of places, um, and I'm the secretary this year. And finally, we have the big honcho, the numero uno, the number one, the big cheese, the Mr. President of the Debaters Association. Hi, um, I don't know how to respond to that introduction, <laughs> but I am indeed the president of the DAV. My name's Jonathan Benny. Uh, people call me JB. I thought I would take a moment to explain what the president actually does, and Actually, Elmira's just said she's the secretary. We should probably explain what the secretary does <laughs> and why we're all here in this room. Most people who are in the DAV are either a school member, like debating at school, or an adult member adjudicating and participating in the things that the DAV does. And then there's that question of, like, well, who coordinates and manages all of those people? The um, office staff. We have three office staff. But then who's in charge of the office staff? That's the really big question. Isn't it charisma? It is not charisma. <laughs> well, not exactly. What we have is we have what's called an executive, and that's a group of nine people. They are volunteers, and each year at an annual general meeting, they're elected. And I don't know if I call myself the leader, but I'm kind of the coordinator of all of these people, and I have to run and organise all the meetings, and that's why I get the title of president. But we also have vice presidents who are responsible for adjudication and schools. Yes, we met one of them in the last podcast, Mitchell yes, Dye. Yes, you might remember Mitchell. Absolutely. We have a media officer whose voice you are very familiar with, that's Alexander. We have a member services officer, Aria, who you heard last time. We also have the secretary, Elmira, and there are a few other people who you might meet. But the DAV is managed by this panel of nine volunteers, and we meet monthly and um, discuss all of the different issues involved in the management of the DAV. And through that, we instruct the executive officer, Charisma, and the office staff. So that's why I'm the president, and that's what the president does. So that's me. Our wonderful president, I'm not the leader, Jonathan <laughs> Benny. Right, so last episode, we spent a lot of time covering some of the topics that our school debaters have been debating. Yes, we did. But... It's not all pre-selected topics that we do. There are a lot of unknown topics out there. So I thought we'd take the time in this second episode to cover unseen topics. Yep. So secret topics make up quite a large proportion of the school's competition topics. Once you're in A and B grade, three out of your five topics are secret topics. C grade students have one secret topic and one advised topic. And a lot of the final series as well includes secret topics. So it's really important that you learn how to approach secret topics as early as you can. A secret topic is basically a topic that you've never seen before that gets released on the night an hour before you debate. So you have an hour to brainstorm and come up with arguments for that topic and make your speeches. Can I bring in my handy iPad to research? 
No, no. Okay, so the rules of Secret Topic are basically that you can only have five team members brainstorming. You can also use no technology unless you're setting an alarm to let you know when your hour is almost up, which means that you can't do any research, but you can bring in printed materials. That is okay. So I can bring my legal studies textbook? Yes, you can bring all your studies. Brilliant. Yeah, I was going to mention some of the things that you might want to bring in. And legal studies and politics textbooks are really, really useful because often secret topics are about let's implement something new in society and it will really help you to know how things get implemented in society. Like if we have a new idea for a great new policy, who does it and how is a very important thing to know in a secret topic. Your legal studies and your politics textbook will give you some ideas about that. Economics textbook might be very useful because often an element of a secret topic is how much is this going to cost? Is it going to be too much? Who's going to pay for it? Are people going to take up this offer? that we're giving them. So all of those different sorts of things can be useful for that. Newspapers can be useful because not all the time, but some of the time, secret topics are about issues in the news. So if you can get a week's worth of newspapers, that can be really useful to see how people like politicians or media commentators or things like that are responding to a particular current issue. They're really handy things to take in. I think we should mention though at this point though, we don't do secret topics of news that's broken in the last few days. We do give a chance to make sure that all the debaters will know about it. We're not going to throw you a curveball of something that broke last night. Mm, we also usually pick the topics a little bit further in advance yes. than the night before. <laughs> We're a professional organisation. <laughs> but um, I will also say, just caution, if you're bringing in lots and lots of textbooks, make sure that you are not getting bogged down in just reading through those textbooks or yeah. including really complicated textbook-based language. Because remember that your arguments still have to be fleshed out and make sense, and also your adjudicator is not necessarily going to have read that textbook, so it could be tricky for them to understand if you're using a very high level of look at my deep economics knowledge that I got from my university level economics textbook that I stole from my older brother that's not going to be necessarily the most persuasive thing yeah yeah the adjudicators aren't going to be persuaded by highly technical language or jargon they're basically playing the role of the average person on the street so even if you have a complicated idea you need to make sure that you take the time to explain it to your adjudicator and audience in everyday language um, so with economics, for example, it sometimes is a little bit quicker if you use a very um, economics textbook phrase for something, but the, if the adjudicator and audience aren't going to understand it, that's not going to be worth your time. So maybe unpack that idea and make sure you put everything in kind of everyday language. Mm, the opposition as well. I think people often underrate trying to be understood by their opposition. It doesn't make for a very good debate if the people you're debating against have no idea what you're talking about. So you need to really be pitching it for everyone in the room. Yeah, and I feel like to some extent, like all team members should be able to understand the resources that are brought in Absolutely. because it's never a fun debate if your third speaker is the only one who has all the information or your first speaker is the only speaker who specialises yeah. in the topic. Mm. Talk, talking about speakers for a second, though if you remember the rules back 10 minutes ago we did say you were allowed five people in the room don't bring a debate team of three you can have two extra people yeah. which can help you and which can be someone to bounce the ideas off and maybe even practice your speech absolutely sometimes you're walking past the room where the team's preparing for a secret topic and it looks like an exam everyone's in three corners of the room everyone's writing away and if I look at that, I think, oh, that's a little bit dodgy because they're not communicating with each other. How do we know their speeches are all going to coordinate well and they're all on the same point? How are they prepared for a battle when they haven't discussed the issues um, amongst the team? So, like, you spend the debate talking, so your preparation should partly be talking as well. Yeah. I'm going to hand over to Izzy in a second who's going to talk about secret topic preparation. But one really important thing is 
This is a good time to write your speech in dot points or short notes. It's not a good time to write out your speech word for word. That's not going to be a good use of your time. Yeah, all right. So we'll move on to what. how do I spend my secret topic prep hour? What do I do in that time that I have? Now, there are four things that I usually recommend students do with their hour, how you split it up. But very first thing, before the topic is even released, before we even get to the start of that hour, make sure you know where your preparation room is and where your debate room is. Knowing where your debate room is will come in very handy at the end of the hour. I will get to that in a minute. But make sure that before the topic is released, you have that information, you've written it down, you've got it with you so that you can get to your room and get started as quickly as possible. So the first thing that I recommend teams do when you look at a topic, any topic, this is also good for preparing prepared topics when you first start, is look at the setup of the topic and break down that topic. So the first most common type of topic that you will get is what we call a normative topic that we should do X, Y, or Z. And what you want to start with there is looking at what problem the topic is trying to solve. What is it that you're going to do to try and fix that problem? Do you think there is a problem? What is the current system? How are we going to change that? Do we want that to be changed, etc. It's very important to first start by looking at what it is the topic is asking you to talk about. What is the point of the topic? So for example, if you look at something like, very boring topic, that we should ban smoking, the point of that topic is about the health of people. It's about broader ideas than just banning smoking. It's about improving society, etc. Or that we should build more wind farms is not about physically building wind farms. It's about the environment and that we should be doing things to help protect the environment, to move to renewable energies, and that the answer to that is wind farms. So you want to be trying and looking at some of the broader ideas behind the topic right at the beginning. The, there are a couple of other different types of topics that you might get as well, which asks you to look at things a little bit differently, which are our empirical topics. So things like that we regret XYZ or that this thing has failed. And what you need to look at there is, particularly with regret topics, what was the world like before? What is the world like now? How has it changed and is it better or worse? So one of the topics we've previously had for this is that we regret the rise of corporate advertising in sport. So we want to look at what was the world like or what was sports like before advertising was involved? What is it like now that advertising is involved? Do we think that advertising has made things better or worse? The other type of empirical topic I want to talk about is that X has failed. I remember doing this in year 12, absolutely killed me, that the Australian government has failed Indigenous Australians. Had no idea how to approach it at all. It was a prepared topic though, very luckily. The question you want to ask yourself here is what does success look like? What would success have been? That is your benchmark for the debate if you're the affirmative team. You want to say, have we or have we not achieved that success that I have prescribed? And basically that's how you sort of discuss whether or not something has failed. Now I realize I've been talking for a long time. Does anyone have anything they'd like to add about topic setup? I'll say one thing really quickly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can interpret a topic in lots of different ways. For example, a topic that says, let's take drastic action to reduce smoking. Now there's a word drastic in there, which suggests you should do something pretty major and pretty quickly, pretty intense, but it doesn't specifically say what it involves. Often you could say, let's define that in a way that makes it easy for us to debate so that there won't be so much opposition from our other team. You can go into the debate and say, our team defines drastic action as increasing the price of cigarettes by 5%. The problem is that's not really very drastic. 
and it gives less ground in the debate. So drastic action might be banning smoking or physically stopping people from smoking or changing health insurance so that smoking becomes not covered by health insurance. All of these things might be considered drastic. Often there's like a lot of leeway, a lot of scope for you to make the line harder where you do more and the change is more intense and more rapid or softer where the change you're proposing is more minor or might take longer or be lesser, less serious. And we would generally say that it's better to take a harder line because it gives you more to debate on. Mm, I often, I often say that if you're making a small change, like we're going to increase the price by 5%, then that's harder for the opposition to find fault with, to say, oh, but you're hurting people. But it's also harder for you to get your benefits. If you're saying smoking is so bad, everyone's dying, how terrible, we're going to increase the price by like one cent. That's not proportionate to the harm that you're trying to explain exists, right? But at the same time, if you go too far the other way, you might be taking things too drastically. There's often sort of a reasonable middle ground that you can take, but it's much better to skew harder than it is skew softer. I think this touches on something that I sort of noticed. I got back from the mid-year holidays into my, uh, you know, first round of debates for term three, and I've been sort of kind of struck by how often I have to talk about the definition in my adjudication. I feel like there's Mm. a lot of teams that are really struggling with that. I think sometimes there are teams out there that think of definition as a box-checking exercise. Mm. Have I looked up the dictionary definition for all the big words? No, that is not what a definition is for. A definition, whether it be a secret topic or a normal topic, is to provide the parameters for the debate so that all debaters are on the same page and are talking about the exact same limits. Mm, So you notice when I talked about setup at the beginning, I didn't say anything about the word definition or looking at the keywords and saying explaining what each one means. But I talked about what is the topic actually asking you? What's it about? It's much more about the context of the debate and the real meaning behind the topic than looking at, okay, this is what we means, this is what should means, this is what ban means, this is what smoking means. It's asking you to put the topic into some kind of context. The example that I use all the time for this is the topic that we should ban smoking could be about smoking cigarettes or it could be about smoking ham, like smoked ham, which you eat. We're asking you in your definition to say, okay, we think the topic is referring to this much more reasonable idea of banning cigarettes and explaining what you mean by that and why that, not giving us the textbook definition of smoking, which also includes smoked ham. Yeah, so basically if you define the topic and you ask yourselves the question, do we think the other team would have interpreted this topic the same way? And the answer is no. Then you probably don't have a reasonable definition because both teams live in the real world, which is why context is so important. Absolutely. So we'll jump on to the next step. I will say I usually recommend about 15 minutes be spent talking about setup, 15 minutes of your hour. I know some people are going to think, wow, that sounds like such a long time. But context is actually really important in the debate because all the arguments need to sort of relate to and revolve around that context, exist in that context. So the next thing that you'd move on to is brainstorming. So that's looking at things like stakeholders, who is affected by the topic and how are they affected by the topic? Is it good? Is it bad for each person or group of people? Themes like social, historical, environmental, economical, political are also ways of sort of brainstorming. But also you can just have people sort of throwing out ideas as they think of them. This is the time when everyone in the team should be talking and contributing, putting out their ideas. There are no dumb ideas, but you don't have to put all the ideas in the finished product. Everyone should be able to put out whatever they can think of. 
to sort of support your case in the debate. The most important thing in the brainstorming section, the thing that I stress to everyone all the time, every speaker in the debate must understand every argument in the debate. So every speaker in your team who is going to get up and present needs to understand every argument that you are running. Oh, but why, if the first speaker doesn't have anything to do with the second speaker's points, do they need to understand it? Because they have to set it up. They have to set up the context in a way that's still going to allow the second speaker's points to exist. And also, later speakers have to defend that material in rebuttal. So they need to understand it. Elmira, you were talking about what happens when not everyone understands a point. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I've noticed in a few debates where the definition sort of changes throughout the speakers, which will often influence the adjudicator to perhaps take away points from method because it kind of makes your team feel like a portion of you will be arguing for one thing and then maybe at third speaker suddenly the context changes and it actually gets really confusing for both the audience and also the other team which is why everyone needs to be exactly on the same page in regards to definition and arguments. Another thing about that which is kind of the flip side is where the first speaker says right I'm going to write my speech and the second speaker says right I'm going to write my speech and they all spend like 20 minutes writing their speech, but they never compare the two speeches. Mm. And then what often happens in a secret topic is that the first and second speakers are essentially saying the same thing, like maybe with a few different examples. And it means that the team doesn't really develop its substantive matter at all across the debate. And there were many things that they might have kind of argued and they'll often miss kind of key ideas. And we'll get two speeches which sound very much the same. Mm. It's a bit of, it's a wasted opportunity. You've just wasted that opportunity of having your second speaker talk about something different to have them rehash the same material with no added benefits. All killer, no filler. That's my motto. (laughs) I like it. All killer, no filler, Benny. Jumping back to brainstorming, it really shouldn't be a time to argue with your team members because it's really just idea generation. Don't fight over what argument you should run yet. Just try to understand the topic as best you can during that time. Bring a whiteboard, Mark. Every classroom has a whiteboard. Use it. Another good thing is that if you bring in your five members of your debating squad and have only three speakers, that means one of your extra people can kind of be like a policeman saying, stop arguing now, Amir and Izzy. You need to kind of patch it up and move on. Or saying, 15 minutes is up. We need to move on to the next time. And there can be somebody who's like an administrator just monitoring everybody and checking, have you got the team split? Are you Have you compared your two speeches? Somebody can be like the organiser in that if you bring in enough extra people. And that's a really helpful role to have. Once you've brainstormed and you've got a full list of all the arguments you can think of, it's time to cut those down to the ones that are the best to run, all right? So how do we pick the best arguments? Usually they are the ones that affect the most people or affect people in the biggest way. So for example, is someone going to die? That's a pretty big impact on that person as opposed to someone just falling over or are many, many people going to fall over versus one person dying? That sort of thing is how I usually explain it. So how many people is this impacting? How big is the impact? That's how you are sort of going to be deciding which arguments to include. However, relating back to what what we said earlier, you've got to understand the arguments. Even if you think, oh, this point affects so many people in such a big way but everyone on the team is incredibly confused about exactly what it is or how what it means, don't talk about it, right? I always say that a simple case explained well beats a fancy case explained badly, right? There's no point in talking about incredibly complicated economic theory that you don't understand because you won't explain it well or properly 
Everyone will be confused and you won't get as many points as you could have if you had just talked about something that you understood as a team. So cutting points down, picking things that you all understand are confident to talk about. The person who is talking about the point ideally would be the most knowledgeable or confident in that point. Don't get stuck in your speaker roles. If the team thinks that, oh, this point should go at second speaker and you're normally a first speaker, but you know everything there is to know about this point, have a go at second speaker because you will give that point a much better go than one of your other speakers might, even if they're used to being the second speaker. I think that it's really helpful for a team to be flexible in this case. I usually recommend a minimum of 20 minutes in the brainstorming and splitting up arguments. You can definitely go for longer than that by cutting into our next section, which is speech writing. This is the time you spend writing down your actual speech. As JB already mentioned, dot points is what you want to aim for here because you want to try and cut down your speech writing time as much as possible so that you can spend more time discussing and brainstorming. What I always say is ask yourself for each point that you are making. How does this point address the problem? Why is this point important to the debate? Why should we care about this theme or this stakeholder? Basically, how does this work? Why is it important? Those are sort of my two things that you want to make sure you include in every point you are explaining to really sort of get to the bottom of that point or at least cover sort of the basis of why that point is something that you are arguing for. I have allocated 20 minutes to speech writing time, which I personally think is horrifically long, but a lot of people freak out if you say less than that. At a maximum, 20 minutes speech writing, not more. If you can, I would be aiming for even less than that, really. In secret topics, people often forget very simple structural parts, like the idea that your speech has three signposts and has three clear points, and that has an introduction and a conclusion and stuff like that. Normally, you don't need to write those things out word for word, but just don't forget them because you're still marked on structure, will give more weight to your great arguments if they're put in an organised way. If you don't know that much about the topic, it's a good way of getting some extra kudos from the adjudicator because they might say, well, you didn't really know much, but at least you had a clear structure and I like the way you signposted things. And that's going to get you a little bit of kudos from the adjudicator, even if There's they're not really impressed There's certainly been plenty of debates that I've seen where the debate is hinged on something as small as that. Mm. But also, when, when it gets to a secret topic and things can get a bit confusing because teams aren't sure exactly what they're talking about, that structure is really so relieving to me as an adjudicator to be able to say, oh good, I was very confused, but at least I know where in the speech we are up to. I know that we're moving on to a new point now, so I can be confused about that instead, right? <laughs> also, um, what's really important is to remember that if you ever feel like you just can't generate enough material for a topic, it is always better to have a short, clear speech rather than to have a speech where you continuously try to paraphrase your arguments to make time because you don't actually get any benefits from that point wise. No, absolutely. I've oftentimes found myself writing down, here is what they said, and again, also again because they're just saying the same thing over and over again, but in different words. Now, those of you who are adding up along might realize that I have made it to 55 minutes of time. What to do with the last five minutes of prep time? What could you possibly do that's so important? Walk to my debate room. Absolutely, and why do you think you should do that? 
because the forfeit time is at five minutes past and oftentimes you can get lost trying to find your room. So you need to give yourself that time to get lost. Yeah, much better to be early. You can keep writing your cue cards leaning up against the wall outside the room. But if you are late and you are forfeited, then that hour is basically wasted. Please make sure that you set an alarm on your phone for five minutes before the hour so that you have time to leave, find the room you're in very comfortably, go to the toilet, do all those things that people want to do right before the debate starts and not be stressed. It's much, much better to wait outside the room because you're early than it is to be rushing to the room in a panic right before your debate. So here we are for experienced adjudicators. We can talk the talk and give all the advice, but can we walk the walk and do what we've just said? Can we practice what we preach? This is heavily edited and condensed for clarity and so you're not listening to half an hour of us writing and squabbling. So let's hand over now to the RC of this executive debate preparation to give us a topic and we'll see how we fare preparing for it. Okay, so we're going to have three speakers on the affirmative team. I hope you know where your debate room is. Um, I hope you've listened to all the rules. I'm not going to say them all again. And your topic is that we should abolish the ATAR system of tertiary entrance. This uh, mad silence that I've just broken is us all frantically scribbling down the topic so that we can refer back to it several times during our preparation. Good idea. Okay, but I'm going to be the boss here. So, Izzy, what was the first stage of your preparation? Setup. Right. Setup. Setup. Okay, guys, start talking about setup. So, we need two things. We need some arguments, and I also think, do we think this is a model debate? Can we implement a model? I think we could implement a model, but I personally don't want to. Okay. Yeah, me too. I just want to get rid of the ATAR. Okay. Anything is better. Although, now that I think about it, we could run a model of, like, a portfolio entrance. So, instead of having exams at the end of the year... It's easy to argue, because a lot of places already do that, especially if you're going into... Architecture, arts, fine arts. Mm, oh, Elmira right. will know about this. She's in an art, yes. fine arts. But how will the medicine kids folio that's, themselves? That's the problem. I yeah. feel like that's really unfair for academic science, subjects. Yeah. Okay, sure. Okay. So we, we need we need something. It's we've got two things. We've basically got really academic and really non-academic. We need something that covers both. One. What problem is it that the topic's asking us to try and fix? Like, what is the problem with the ATAR system? It's, is it it's too heavily academic? I it, think it's more about some people not actually having the resources to get a good high school education. I think we, it's also a fact of one of the big problems I felt with the ATAR is it's very specific your entire schooling life is coming down to one exam so i'm gonna ask you guys to think a little bit more about what you're going to propose in the setup part and so izzy kind of gave us two options she said option one is let's just abolish the atar and get rid of it and not talk about something that's going to replace it and option two is we replace it with like a portfolio and that could be like artworks for like art type courses but it could also be like you your could... work from school or your yeah it maths, could be it could be assignments like it could yeah. be um, it could, could be tests but just like multiple Test, which yeah. is different to just one so, or two exams. We've got option one of not proposing anything, and option two of the portfolio. I'm going to ask you this question: What is the negative going to find harder to argue against, the portfolio or nothing? The portfolio. portfolio. I reckon I, nothing. I, I I reckon the portfolio is quite easy to debunk in the sense that like it's so inefficient. Mm, and if they argue, mm. but the thing is, if we propose nothing, nothing, they'll say this is better than not doing anything. You have no solution. Now I think about it, coming from an engineering background, I can see how you could theoretically make a portfolio out of 
more hands-on stuff that could be applicable to yeah. science, yeah. medicine, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think it would be good because the thing about having a portfolio for something like the sciences, like a lot of the university course, a lot of the schoolwork is like PRAC-based, mm. but a lot of the assessment that's currently used in the ATAR is not pracs at all so if you open something to a portfolio then you could say oh here are pracs that i've done here are reports that i've written outside of the exam room in two hours as well as having things like tests and exams by diversifying i think we allow people to shine in different ways can we put that down in the argument list yeah i agree with what both is in alexander said because i think one of the bad things about the atar is it's one size fits all it doesn't matter whether you're going to arts engineering nursing theology it could be anything they all just use one number to let you into uni but that's pretty lazy and simplistic with a portfolio each course can specify different things that it needs so it becomes much less one size fits all there are a few rare exceptions but there are no exams in the real world but having to show off your work that you have done over a long period of time that is what the real world is about you have work you have to do over a long period of time and a portfolio is just a way of showing that off so Mm. it's more true to but exam results can be in the portfolio as well like it doesn't mean you have to have no exams you can still say well I I sat these 10 math tests at my school or you can still have external exams and say like I still got like a high mark for math methods or something it doesn't mean you can't have that that just forms part of the assessment and not all of it Yeah, so I think we should make it really clear that exams still exist because some courses need some sort of proof that students can handle pressure, which is what I think the ATAR So we don't want to take away exams, we don't want to take away the VCE, but we want to make university entrance broader. Yeah. Does that give us a good enough setup that we can work on? I think so. so. Okay, so we'll move into the next phase now, and we need to kind of think of some arguments and think about how we might develop those arguments and ask ourselves, what are the strongest arguments? So first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go round one by one, um, and I'm going to ask each of the team members what they think the best argument for abolishing the ATAR is. And you can't repeat an argument somebody's already said. Oh, yikes. So, Alexander, what's your favourite argument for abolishing the ATAR? I think the whole idea of it's unfair, it's a single number, it's not indicative of a student's true performance. Okay. Elmira, what's your favourite argument for abolishing the ATAR that isn't that one? I think it it allows uni to accept more diverse, all-rounded students I feel like if you can put together a good portfolio, then you would have some sort of passion for what you're doing, which is really Mm. important. And Izzy, what's your favourite argument that wasn't those two? Oh, I, I feel like the two best ones were stolen, but that's fine. Um, I think it's actually better for education in high school, better for teachers, because they're not being encouraged or pressured towards teaching to an exam or to a test. They have to focus much more holistically on actually creating a good student who is knowledgeable of the content and also able to practically apply that yeah. content. And so I think it creates a better class of teacher and it creates a better educational environment earlier on. Yeah. And I think that that is is much better for schools. I think it creates a better educational outcome overall. That, okay, so those are three really good arguments. We've got unfairness, mm-hmm. we've got diversity in university entrance, and we've got it will improve the high school experience. Anything else you guys want to add? Well, are there any stakeholders that we feel like we haven't talked about? That's a good way of thinking about it. Unfairness affects students in particular. It probably affects schools as well. Diversity is affecting universities as well as the students. High school is affecting the students and the teachers. Mm-hmm. Who are we missing out on? Parents. Can we think of a really useful argument for parents? Well, I feel like there is this culture in some schools or in some places or in some just ethnicity groups where studying really hard and getting really high scores is 
is proof of being a good student. And I feel mm. like introducing this might pose some problems for those people who would find it quite hard to adapt. Or it might mm. be a step towards changing the culture. Yeah. away from the pressure on the exam moment and like yeah. study 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 less stress on students or pressure on students coming from the school might encourage parents to put less pressure on and students it's kind of like Amira just said it's not just parents as a stakeholder it's kind of like the whole community and the way that society sees the ATAR as well as just your parents in particular um, I know I said there are no dumb ideas but I feel like I'm going to say this and you're all going to laugh at me it's better for the environment because there might be less exams and exams are all very heavily paper based they print them we write on them it could be but better. In your model, you never said you were going to stop exams, so there are still going to be some yeah. exams. Okay, and sure. so you haven't seen the paper usage in a folio, clearly. I think if there's going to be 100 of Elmira's graphic novels in this folio, <laughs> that's going to be more than like the mathematics okay. exam. I'm sorry, it's, um, sorry, Izzy. We still think you're a great person, but we might not use that argument. But that that's was a good okay. simulation of what to do. So I think that we have some pretty good quality arguments there. I think that I think the first arguments we came up with are honestly some of the best arguments. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that they're going to be good arguments is because we're all able to think of them quite quickly. Yeah. In that they clearly make a lot of sense to us. Why do we care about how people get into uni or if they get into uni at all? Is that a question we should care. answer? The unis care. They, um, but I think society cares because society it wants, cares because it wants good... So I think here is a problem that we have. The ATAR system is problematic because it's very specific and it's very limited. It's not giving you a whole picture of the student, right? It's just showing you this small section of their academic ability. What that means is that students are being put into university courses based on a very small part of themselves and their abilities, and then they're not fulfilling those courses to the best of their ability. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, those students are wasting their money, they're wasting their time. The government's wasting their money, the universities are wasting their money, wasting their time. So I think that that's sort of an extension of the problem. And I think that's a really good question we should have looked at yeah. right at the beginning, but I'm glad that we sort of got to it's it. It's a good thing to remember, and I think it's good first speaker material. For uni entrants, both from unis themselves and from the broader perspective, you want quality of graduates so that you want people who go into the engineering degree who are going to like go through, pass all their subjects, come out at the end and be a terrific engineer. Yeah. Exactly. You're, Look, you want people who are going to be able to do the job that they've trained yeah. for. You don't want people like me who spend a year and a half at university and realise, well, actually, that was a waste of time. No. And then just go into a workforce that's unrelated, right? But the other thing that the unis are looking for is fairness. So they want to be able to make sure that somebody who goes into uni gets in there because they deserve it and not because of something about their background or their upbringing or somebody like something like that. So I focusing on a, fairness and quality I think that's good for the debate, but I think in I think that we need to realise that universities are also money-making institutions yeah. and they don't necessarily care that much. Yeah, and they can't change the whole world, okay. but we want to say that our system is going to be fairer, yes. not 100% perfect fair. I'm going to do one next thing, or two more things before we finish up, because we're not going to do the speech writing bit. No. I'd like you to split up the points and talk between the three of you who's going to go first, who's going to go second, what material goes at first and second. And then last of all, I'd like to take one of the points and talk about how we might turn like an idea into an argument. So let's start off with the division of material between the different speakers and I'm going to leave it up to you team. First thing we have to do is like introduce like, so the first speaker is going to have to introduce the problem so the yeah. current system the context why it is we're wanting to, wanting to bring in yeah. this change what we mean by the portfolio mm -hmm. so all our definition model all that sort yeah. of stuff then we've got our ideas of unfairness for students and better system of entry I think that first speaker because they have established the problem is that, that the ATAR is not the most accurate way of getting the right people into the right courses, should probably then talk about that argument. 
because I think it flows well from the main problem. Yeah, I agree mm-hmm. with that. I think that's sort of the idea of unfairness and the mm-hmm. idea of diversity of uni- for universities, of getting the right students. So it's like a holistic view, or like better quality graduates. Mm-hmm. And I would put at second speaker, this is all my opinion, so if you guys disagree, feel free to let me know. But I would put at second speaker the idea of improving the quality of education at high school level as well. Yeah. So we're giving the second speaker less material because we're on the affirmative. First speaker is not going to have any rebuttal time, but second speaker is. So to me, that makes sense as a division of material. Mm-hmm. Is anybody going to volunteer to be the first speaker? I will. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's great. Um, and so you'll have some idea about your speaker roles. Yeah. Who wants to be the second speaker? Um, well, I look, I'm happy to go second. I brought up the quality of education point in the first place, so okay. I'm happy to right. yeah. talk well, about high school. No problem. Now, we have to tr- just jump in a reminder at this point that that doesn't mean that Izzy and Elmira are going to go away and prepare separately they need to make sure they understand each other's arguments. So as they're writing their speeches, they should just be chatting to each other. We're saying, still physically seated yeah, yeah, at the yeah. same table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not in the corner of the room like you all smell I terrible think, and hate each other. I, I also think it's really good to have the extra people in the room for this part as well. Because when you're writing your speech, you want to be sort of writing out dot points and things and saying, oh, what if I mentioned this example? Yeah. Oh, does this explanation make sense? Yeah. You and need then an idea, but everyone, you need to sound your ideas off Everyone something. as a team is yeah. listening to that, and therefore everyone on the team knows what you're going to be talking about. And that leaves Alexander as the third speaker. So, what Alexander will do is, firstly, he's going to listen to Izzy and Elmira talking about the topic. He's going to make sure that he can do that little bit of summary at the end. But most of all, you'll probably be thinking about helping the other speakers with their material, thinking of examples, thinking of evidence, Mm. and he'll also be thinking about some rebuttal. Yeah, so, so what might the other team say? Yeah, what are some so of their big arguments? One thing that Alexander might do is like, hey guys, stop every everything. I need your opinion on this. <laughs> what if the negative team says that the ATAR is really cheap and it's efficient and the portfolios are going to cost too much? I What's your a, response to that? I have a great answer to that. <laughs> that is state-funded. It's worth the money. It's absolutely... A better quality of education is absolutely worth the money because better education means better graduates. So we have better education in high school. We have better selection of students for university. Therefore, we have better graduates at the end of the process. We have less money wasted on people who drop out, don't ever repay their hex debt. We have better people going into the workforce, therefore making more money for the government, supporting society better, et cetera, et cetera. And you notice that everyone was listening to that in the room. It wasn't just a conversation between Izzy and Alexander, so we all heard it. And I think another good thing to ask your team member when you're explaining an argument is, is this enough to convey the point? And oftentimes it will be, whereas I feel like some people try to force in any information they can to make it wholer, but sometimes it can actually get confusing when you have too many examples. It's so heartbreaking sometimes when you're like, oh, this is such a great example, but then in the in the scheme of things, as you're writing your speech and preparing, all of a sudden that example turns out to be not actually as important or as relevant yeah. or as powerful, and you're like, but I really liked it as an example, but it just has to go. It's going to be a good, easy Amira dialogue at the first and second speakers to say, what's going to be your evidence for unfairness? What's your killer example? What's your most important example? Mm, What do you Um, think that might be in this case? I reckon it would be the likelihood of people from different regions or different areas to graduate university or to get into uni in the first place. Because I feel like a really unfair thing about the ATAR is if you live in a place without as many resources as the CBD, for example, you are basically guaranteed to get a low ATAR and your options for uni. I can certainly attest that there's a whole lot of scholarships for people like that just to get them into the uni. Yeah. We might see a case where... Alexander's from Geelong. (laughs) Thank you. It's so fun. Um, 
Um, no, I think definitely. I think dropout rates and rural students are both really good examples. They sound like good examples for Elmira's speech. What about your speech, Izzy? Looking at quality of education, I think I would talk about teaching to the test. That's something that people talk about all the time. I feel like it's such a buzz phrase. To be able to, like, teaching to the test and everyone everyone agrees teaching to the test is evil and terrible. We should never do it. Talking about sort of how we're going to avoid that, I think, is sort of a, a strong point. But also I feel like nowadays there are heaps of talk about how, like, students don't feel like they're actually being individually helped or... Mm. we're talking about learning styles a lot nowadays yeah. and I think that having a folio kind of fits into that because the teacher will have to specifically sort of tailor some attention to what that particular student wants to yeah, show. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Different, um, the, uh, what is it, learning styles. Um, so that's good examples for the second speaker as well. I'm writing so, that down, that's yeah. great. So you know, we're now at the stage where we can kind of move into speech writing. We've got our basic ideas, we've got our basic structure, we've got a definition, we've got a model, we've got rebuttal ready to go. So our secret topic is kind of ready to start. And maybe our negative team is going to be awesome and beat us. But I reckon we've got a pretty good chance. What I will just say quickly is our model, I worry, I don't want our model to be too complicated. Yeah, no, it has mm. to be simple. We um, don't want one of those horrible four-minute models. No. Yeah, so, so your model is not an argument and should not um, be the duration of your speech. What, yeah. what, how do you think we could put our model in quickly? Like, how would you explain it if you had to in two sentences? Is the model going to explain the background or will that be done separately? No, that's sort of the context. Yeah, but, like, yeah. the, the model being sort of the portfolio. Can you, Elmira, you're the first speaker. How do, how do you think you would present that um, model? So I would probably reinstate the fact that exams still exist and can be used. Then I would say that we are just no longer giving out ATARs, like there won't be that huge standardised test at the end of everything, and that university entries will just be based on folio, which is kind of up to the teachers to help the students with. Yeah. Like, I would just chuck in a couple of examples of what might be included in a portfolio. Yeah. So scientific pracs, research projects, tests and exams... So that we extracurricular activities, yeah, yeah, like it's, debating. It's <laughs> yes. So just having a few examples saying can include, not must include. Portfolios can include. Yes. <laughs> there's a really quick note that the ATAR is the Australian Tertiary Admissions Rank. So this still means that each state can still have its VCE or HSC or whatever mm. in different states. You know, we won't necessarily take away from that. So. It's important in the model to say, here's what we're changing, but we might not change everything. Yeah. So your VC results are going to be important in your portfolio, but they're not going to be everything towards the to, towards your tertiary end. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one thing that would be important to mention in the model. The really cool thing is that now your co-curricular activities will actually be looked at no matter what course you're in. So yeah. I think more students will feel comfortable dedicating that extra time. Yeah, absolutely. That's And that's part of this idea of that we were talking about that didn't quite make it into our actual arguments, the idea of parental pressure. Because if you've got parents who are saying, no, don't do any other activities, you have to study... If all of a sudden your activities count for something, then you're going to have more encouraging parents yeah. who are more likely to say, oh, no, actually, you know what? Keep playing that musical instrument into year 12. Like, keep going to debating. I understand that this is now a valuable use of your time because it will help your future in a very definitive way that I can quantify. You might still end up using that in rebuttal anyway. So yes. even if you don't use that in your substantive, you might, yeah, you might end up in rebuttal anyway. No, I think it was definitely good to brainstorm. Yeah. Okay. No, I think that was like just an example of the types of things that people talk about and secret topics and how they talk about it and how we can kind of remind each other to stay focused on track and how we can work together as a team and hopefully not fight and listen respectfully to everyone's opinion. I'm so, also going to take a photo of my notes. I think we should I all take a photo of the say, notes. I was just about to say, yeah, and I'll put them in the, uh, is it, what do we call it, show notes on the page? Yeah. There's a page <laughs> for each podcast and on the page for this podcast 
podcast, there will be the photos or links to photos of the notes we have taken. So please have a look at those. So I think another good thing to observe is that I was a bit on the fence about this topic at the beginning. But one thing that we should never do is we should never purposely get carried away with being the devil's advocate during the secret topic. We should always just give every point that we come up with the benefit of the doubt and push it as far as we can because that's how you're going to get the highest quality out of you and everyone else. I think you could tell at the beginning, Elmira, you know, that you disagreed a little bit with the approach that we were taking, but then I think that we convinced you and put you on board. (laughs) At least I would hope that if you continued to have serious doubts, you would have told us. Yeah. Well, I hope that's provided all of our Schools Comp listeners and even our other debating competition listeners with a very good example of how you can structure your one-hour preparation time for a secret topic. That's all we have. So until next month, that is a goodbye from me. Bye. Bye. Bye.